voiceth against judgment. Now James is speaking as he has been and as he'll continue to, and we've noticed this in each session, he's speaking about tests of faith. And the test that we saw in chapter 1 was, first of all, the distinction between a test and and temptation. We saw the definition given there in chapter 1. And then he went on to speak about the Word of God. And he spoke about our response to and the impact of the Word of God in our character. And that was a test of true faith, that the Word of God would have its impact. And we would not just be hearers of the Word, but we would be doers of of the same. And then you come into chapter 2 and he continues this same idea of tests of the genuineness of our faith. And again, as I said last time, these tests might not just be the sort of tests that we would have written down if we were asked to test, you know, how do you know someone's a true Christian? How do you test the genuineness of their faith, a profession of faith and so on? And we may come up with all sorts of doctrinal things and all sorts of theoretical things, but James is speaking about practical Christianity as evidence of the internal reality that we profess. So he's speaking about things that are not theoretical, that are not academic or intellectual, but rather he's speaking about things that can be seen, things that are very practical and down to earth and none more so than the subject he deals with here in chapter 2. Now, this is a subject that's bang up to date because it would be bang up to date whenever uh, human beings are in a relationship with each other. It's always been like this, that the issue of discrimination is always present within communities and within relationships. And it's a big thing nowadays, and there's all sorts of ways of measuring discrimination in our society, some of which are against the law now, and others are socially unacceptable, and others are just actually part and parcel of normal life. And so, as society has changed, so the needle has changed on that. Things that were acceptable 100 years ago in society are now no longer acceptable and seen as discrimination, and laws are passed about these things. Well, that's not a new thing, because when you come to this section, it's interesting that James is going to speak about law. Now, he's not speaking about the law of the land. He's speaking about God's law. And he's speaking about a law not that binds and restricts, but a law that frees and liberates. It's the perfect law of liberty. He's not speaking about a law that was passed by a government or a legislative body upon earth, or even a sovereign upon earth. He's speaking about a law that is of the sovereign God. It's the sovereign law, the royal law. And so the source of this law is the supreme sovereign and this law liberates, this law brings us into freedom. So it is the subject of discrimination that's before us, that James brings before us here in chapter 2. And he begins it by speaking about this very thing and giving us a principle that he states in the first verse. Now this is not a new thing. This is taught throughout Scripture, and God has revealed himself as being someone who is not partial himself and also does not expect his people to be partial in their relationships. And especially when it comes to the poor and needy. There's a lot in the Old Testament about this, and we'll touch on this in a moment or two. But it's interesting, isn't it, that when we come across those who are needy, those who are poor, 
in our circumstances, whether we're meeting them in work, whether we're meeting them in our community, whether we're meeting them, whatever, whether we're meeting them as a church, when they come across our path, that is a test of our faith. And God views it as such. So it's not just random stuff in life, but these things are seen as tests. And our performance, our reaction, what we do is actually a measure of who we are and where we are spiritually. So these things are not without significance. Our interaction, our thought process in relation to people who are needy, people who are poor, and it's economic discrimination that's going to be the issue here in chapter 2. Now John writes about this, we, we touched on this in First John chapter 3 and verse 16 by this, Perceive we the love of God, because he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. And whosoever has this world's goods, and sees his brother have need, and closes up his compassion from him, how dwells the love of God in him? So it's inconsistent to say that we are Christians, and the love of God is in us, if when we see compassion, we don't respond to that. If we see need, sorry, we don't respond to that in the way that God does. When God sees need, he is moved by compassion. When we see need, that might not be the case. So it is a, it is a biblical thing right throughout Scripture. If God, in 1 John 4 verse 11, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. If we love one another, God dwells in us. And the expression of that is practical. Now let's come to the principle in verse number one. He says, my brethren, have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with respect of persons. Now, the language, I'm not sure which version you're reading, but there in the King James, the authorised language can be a bit confusing in places and also in this verse. And it may well be that when you read that, at least in a kind of superficial way, you think that I have not, I have not to have the faith that the Lord Jesus Christ has with respect to persons. But actually the construct of the sentence is different. And he introduces it by this expression, my brethren. Now often, James uses this expression to introduce quite a forceful exhortation and a new exhortation. For example, here, and he launches off into this whole thing about discrimination. But he's done the same thing in chapter 1 and verse 2. He said, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. And he did it again in verse 16 of chapter 1. Do not err, my beloved brethren. And then he introduces a new thing again. In chapter 3, he'll do the very same thing. My brethren in verse 1. Be not many masters or be not many teachers. Chapter 4, verse 11. Speak not evil one of another, brethren. And that expression, again in chapter 5 and verse 7, I just noted it down here. Be patient, therefore, Brethren, unto the coming of the Lord. And you can use it like a punctuation of subjects that James uses or, or raises in the epistle. Now, the order in the original language of Greek, New Testament Greek, is as follows. My brethren. And then the next phrase is, with respect of persons. That's in the emphatic. That's where the emphasis lies in the sentence. So, my brethren, and then emphatically, with respect of persons. This is the issue that he's speaking about. This is the key thought. 
This is what needs to be emphasised. He's speaking about respect of persons. Now, respect of persons is actually a plural word. Partialities is the idea. Not just one, but many. So he says, my brethren, with respect, with regard to partialities, this issue of being partial. Now, what does that word actually mean? Now, very often in these words, particularly in the Greek language, there is a picture that lies within the word that makes the word easy to understand, if you get the picture. And here, the root of the word means to lift up somebody's face or to elevate them. And the idea is just this, that you judge someone on a superficial basis and exalt them as a consequence of that. So it's the old thing, you know, man looks in the outer appearance, God looks in the heart. So you're making an assessment of an individual and that assessment is based on external superficial thing and you elevate that person as a consequence of that. So he says partiality and when you elevate someone as a consequence of that, then conversely you also can bring someone down in your thinking as a consequence of external things, of superficial things. So he's going to speak here about the problem of giving someone preferential treatment or thoughts based on race, on wealth, on dress, on rank, on social status, or something like that. So you're going to treat them differently because of something like that. Now he says, that's one thing, I want to speak to you about that. Now if you take the rest of the sentence... Have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ. What he's saying is just this, and this is an imperative. Do not hold the Christian faith and hold it alongside partiality. Don't have the two together. They don't sit together. The verb carries the idea, do not be in the practice of partialities and holding, confessing faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, being a Christian. So the two don't go together. It's inconsistent. Because the whole of your faith in Christ is based upon the fact that God is not partial. That's the whole premise of faith in Christ. That God looks upon the heart God does not discriminate based upon wealth, on social status, on race or language. God is the same to everyone and is not partial. Therefore, if you have faith in Christ, you cannot, you must not have alongside that partiality in your thinking. The two are inconsistent. They don't go together. One is a contradiction of the other. And our salvation is a testimony to God's impartiality. So therefore we cannot be partial as Christians. Now that's the basic principle that he's going to speak about. Then he adds this little expression. And here in the authorised, and I checked in the ESV, it's the same. You'll notice in the authorised, if you have it before you, the helpful use of italics in the verse. So my brethren have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, and in italics the Lord... 
and then a normal script of glory with respective persons. Now, one of the helpful things, I know the authorised version language can be difficult and so on, uh, especially if you've not been brought up with it or not or, or used to it. And quite often when I'm speaking, I'll retranslate the English into a kind of more modern English. But here is one area where it is helpful. Because that expression, the Lord, is being inserted by the translators into the text in order to give their understanding of what the text means. So it's not there in the original language. It's an insertion. So actually, this little expression of glory is just kind of tagged on. And it could read, my brethren, have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ of glory with respect of persons. And this is the divine presence. This is the Shekinah. And the glory is the Shekinah, the presence of God. You cannot hold the faith of Jesus Christ, who's the Shekinah, who's the glory of God, who's the expression, the outshining, if you like, of the character of God and act inconsistently to that character. That's what he's saying. So you cannot demonstrate manifest features that are inconsistent with Christ who is displaying, who is the expression of God himself. And in God, those features are not present. The two must be inconsistent. They are inconsistent. So now in verse 2, he'll give an example of what he's talking about. So he gives this very practical example that you can imagine. And you can imagine it here in Hope Hall. You can imagine it in the building that you gather um, as an assembly. And he says in verse 2, For, there's a connector, If there come unto your assembly, the word is really synagogue, a man with a gold ring in goodly apparel, and there come in also a poor man in vile raiment. So here's the example. Now this has got nothing to do with whether his clothes and his many rings, because it's not one gold ring, by the way, that's a highly need to say this, but it's got nothing to do with wedding rings or anything like that, and it's got nothing to do with clothing and so on. The idea is just this, there walks in a man who is evidently wealthy. That's the point. He's got, you know, I was going to say rings on his fingers and his toes, but he's actually just got lots of gold rings on his, on his fingers and his clothing demonstrate this is a man of wealth. <coughs> now, how do you know he's a man of wealth? Because of the externals on his person. It's not because he's talked to you. It's not because you've discerned that by getting to know him or anything like that. It's got nothing to do with his character. There is no condemnation of the way he's dressed. His dress just speaks as to his wealth. That's it. That's what James is saying. So you're sitting there, gathered together as an assembly, as a local church. The door opens and in walks a man. And this man is a man of wealth. How do you know? Because you made that judgment based upon the externals. Now, it may be or it may not be, but that's what he looks like. Now, what's the equivalent today? Well, the equivalent today is not someone who walks in with rings in every one of his fingers. You might think he's not a man of wealth if he did that. The equivalent would be if someone walked in very well-dressed and was parking an expensive car or something like that outside, but has external manifestations of wealth about him. He's known to be someone, perhaps in the community, who's wealthy. Now, there's another man comes in. And the externals of his appearance are the opposite end of the scale. 
So it says they're coming also to two men have come in. This man's a poor man in vile raiment. Now that's not a that's not a fashion statement. That's not a that's not a conclusion as to his clothing. That's just the fact that this man's poor. He's probably living rough, and he probably smells. He hasn't eaten for a while, and his clothes are bad. And he comes in, and you look at that man, and you think there's a poor man. So a rich man has walked in, and a poor man has walked in. Both ends of the social economic scale. No comment is made by John about either of these two men. None whatsoever. They just walk in. We're not told if they're Christians. We assume that they're not, just because uh, the Christian's response to the two men is actually the point at issue. So you come to verse number three. And in verse number three, then, you have the picture painted, and now you have the reaction of the Christians to these men. This is the point. He says, you have respect to him that wears the fancy clothes and you say to him come and sit here in a good place now remember this this is the word synagogue this was the early days of christians and they still would be gathering together these christians from a jewish background at their place of worship they didn't have buildings they this wasn't you know well on into the church age or anything like that so so these people are meeting together now they had the background of meeting in a synagogue and when you met in a synagogue where you sat was significant now, there still is some places where you sit is significant it's not in this building you can sit anywhere you want but do you know the idea was just this, that you would pay for a good seat. Now, in their culture, a good seat was at the front. In our assembly culture, a good seat's at the back, for some reason. But you see, they would want to be seen. They would want to be on display. So they would come in and they would sit right down the front. Now, what's happening is just this. The, the assembly, the Christian, sees this man come in, wants to impress him, values him, wants to kind of be close to him, wants to show him respect because of his wealth, and brings him right down and puts him in a good seat. That's what he does. Now, why does he do that? Simply because of his external appearance. That's why. Now, what about the, the other man, the man who's in the vile clothing? Well, no one wants to sit beside him. No one wants him near them. So what they do is just this. They say, you can stand at the back. Or, you can sit here under my footstool. Now, that wasn't the kind of footstool that was about three inches off the ground. He's going to have to crawl under uh, in some sort of way. But it was just this. You can either demean yourself and sit at my feet, or you can stand at the back. But what I'm going to do by putting you at the back standing, or putting you down at my feet, is to demonstrate that you are less worthy than me. You're less important. You have no consequence. I'm not interested in you as a person. Why? Because of the clothes you wear. Because of what those clothes say to your economic status and wealth. So what he's saying is just this. Here's the scenario. Now, let's just think about that. And take that outside of this context into our daily life make the application because this is not something that's restricted to a gathering of a local church this is a character this is a this is an attitude towards people 
that displays and tests the reality of our faith. Whether we are Christ-like in character or not. Because how would the Lord Jesus deal with people in his life? Well, you read the Gospels and you discover this. He dealt with everyone the same. So someone like Zacchaeus was dealt the same as Bartimaeus and lived in the same town. Neither got preferential treatment. They were both given the same time, the same attention, the same respect as individuals, as human beings, even although their status in that society was completely different. One was one end of the social status, the economic status, and one was the other end. One had a lovely house to invite the Lord Jesus, and he went into the lovely house. He didn't stay away. He didn't pull back from the man of wealth. But neither did he pull back from the man of poverty. There's no condemnation of the wealth, and there's no kind of condemnation of the poverty. They are seen as being irrelevant, as being insignificant factors in that relationship that the Lord had with them. So when you take this and you apply it, then you discover this, this is actually quite a test. This is not just a simple thing. Because the flesh within us tends to produce within us a discriminatory attitude towards people. Every one of us. And it is created by many factors in our life. By our upbringing, by by where we live, by by our education, uh, and all this kind of stuff. It all impacts the way we think about people and the way we behave towards people. It's quite a test. Quite a contrast to the Lord Jesus. Do you remember he was... He treated women and men just the same. He treated people of different nationalities the same. He actually treated people of different religious persuasions the same. He treated people like people. And so what James is saying is just this. In verse number four, if you do, if you do not do that, if you don't do that, if you treat someone differently, someone that comes in to your building and you discriminate against them on the basis of externals, you make a difference. He says in verse 4, this is what you're doing. You are partial in yourselves and you have become judges of or with evil thoughts. So it's sin. It's sin. So discrimination in this chapter on the basis of social or economic status is sin. According to James, he says you become judges with evil intent. That word evil really means vicious intent. I mean, it's vicious if you're in the receiving end of it. It's not vicious if you get down to the nice seat and you made a fuss off. There's nothing vicious about that. But it's vicious if you're the man who's humiliated and stuck up the back and treated like that. Vicious. So he says you're being motivated to cater to the rich and the prominent and shun the slight and slight the poor and the common. That is not how God behaves. That is not how Christ behaves. And that is not how Christians ought to behave. So then let's ask the question, why? Why not? Why not discriminate? What's so bad about discrimination? What's so bad about making a difference? 
What's so bad about treating people differently and some better than others based upon my external appreciation of who that person is and coming to a conclusion about the value of that person to me based on these things? Why? Well, James doesn't leave it there. You know, James gives a very compelling reason. In fact, it's more than one reason why that behaviour doesn't even make sense in their context. Now look at this. And he's going from verse 5 down to verse 7 to explain why they shouldn't pander to the rich. Now that was a problem in their day. But it can be a problem in our day as well. To be sycophantic to those who we think can provide some benefit to us. It might not be wealth, it could be something. And to therefore cultivate the relationship for what we can get out of that relationship uh, and see it in that way. Sometimes that can happen at work. Sometimes it can happen in a community, in a society, in an assembly. And relationships are cultivated and they're cultivated for the purpose of extracting something of benefit to yourself. Well, he says this, don't pander to the rich. Why? Well, number one, verse five, it's inconsistent with God's choice in salvation. Because he says here, hath not God chosen the poor of this world rich in faith? Now, God has chosen the poor, he's saying, but you act as if it's the rich that God has chosen. Now, this has got no relationship to the Lord's teaching in Matthew 5, blessed be the poor in spirit. He's speaking about poverty of wealth uh, and poverty in society uh, and economics. And he's just saying that God, by and large, not exclusively, by and large, saves the poor. It's the poor that respond to the gospel, by and large. Not exclusively, because after all, there was rich in Paul's days who were Christians, and God used the rich. He used Joseph of Arimathea. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, Paul says to Timothy, charge them that they are rich, and he gave them instruction as to how to manage the wealth that God had given them, and so on. There's no condemnation of being rich at all, but there are not many rich who come to Christ. The majority of those are poor in society. And God deals with the poor. God protects the poor. God has chosen the poor, it says here, of this world to be rich in faith. And you go through your Old Testament and there are so many scriptures where God's protection and blessing rests upon the poor. Let me just give you some. Psalm 68, O God, thou hast prepared of thy goodness for the poor. Psalm 72, he shall judge the poor of the people. He shall save the children of the needy and break in pieces the oppressor. Psalm 113, he raiseth up the poor of the dust. He lifteth the needy out of the dump. Proverbs 17, verse 5. This is quite a proverb, by the way. Whoever mocks the poor reproaches his maker. If you mock the poor in society... You mock God, their maker. That's quite a proverb. Proverbs 28, verse 27. Whoever gives to the poor will not want, but he who hides his eyes will get many a curse. God's eyes are over these things. God is a care for the poor of this world. And so should we. We shouldn't be hard-hearted. We should be generous as a group of Christians within a community of theirs need, we should be 
We should be moved by that need. Individually as well, we should not be stingy people. We should be generous people and not tight with our money. And God provides for the poor. In the Old Testament, for example, in the sacrificial system, poor people could, if they couldn't bring the sacrifices that were prescribed, there was provision for them. They could bring a turtle dove. They could bring something they could afford because God had the care for the poor. Every seventh year, all debt was cancelled in Israel. Imagine that. Take a mortgage for 25 years and then, whoa, seventh year come, boom. It does mean that the cycle of borrowing is a very... Obviously a very good system because it's God's system. I mean, the cycle of uh, borrowing, the cycle of of being an indentured servant and all this kind of thing was in a seven-year cycle. So people couldn't get into lifetimes of debt. It's impossible. Because no one would, would, would loan money for a period more than seven years. No repayment scheme could last for more than seven years. Uh, and the seventh, the Sabbath year was the year that the white the slate was wiped clean. Servants were liberated and all the rest of it. The land was given rest. God structured society. God structured the economy of that nation to protect the poor. And it's interesting that much of the condemnation to the leaders of Israel in the minor prophets is about their abuse and exploitation of the poor in society. And they did not fulfil God's instructions with regard to the poor, and that led to all sorts of problems within society, and still does today. Now, that's not to say, as I mentioned, that God did not choose, save, and use people of wealth, and still does today. But the majority are not people of wealth. Uh, But the contrast is this, they may be poor in terms of this world's riches, but not in terms of true riches, because these are the people that God has chosen to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom. Never materially rich, but their faith in Christ has brought them spiritual riches that are eternal, that will far, far outweigh the wealth of this world. Paul spoke about that in his service as an apostle in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. And he spoke about the contrast between the temporal and the spiritual and eternal. And he says about himself, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, as poor, yet making many rich. He said, I'm materially poor, I've got nothing. But in my service, there are people who have been spiritually enriched by the labor that he was was, was spending and expending as an apostle of Christ. And that's how Paul looked at his service. He saw the spiritual, he saw the eternal perspective rather than the material perspective. He said, I've had the privilege of making many rich in a spiritual sense. And he says, not only rich in faith, but heirs of the kingdom. And if there's anything that exercises people in terms of wealth, it's inheritance. I used to see some of this, just a little bit of this in my work. And the conflicts that would go on about inheritance in a family. People fight about this in a big way. The family wealth. And heirs within the family and the conflict. There were those who asked the Lord Jesus to intervene. If you remember the man who came... Lord, would you intervene in the dispute between my brother and me and family inheritance? The Lord said, I'm nothing to do with that. I'm not here to deal with your family inheritance. 
And so heirs of the kingdom, and this is an expression, the kingdom is that sphere in which the authority of Christ is acknowledged and applied. And there, is a, there are kind of multifacets of that idea of the kingdom in scripture. But he's saying this, that the poor on earth who are Christians are rich in faith and heirs, not of material wealth, but the kingdom of God which has been promised to them that love him. That's the first thing. The second thing in verse number six is just this, that doesn't make any sense to pander to the wealth of society is because of their treatment of the poor. Verse six, the rich generally oppress the poor. That's still the same today. Society is structured for the enrichment of the rich. And this is not a communist or socialist type of uh, message here. It's just fact that the wealth, you know, is disproportionately held by the top of the chain and the majority of people don't get to see it or, or enjoy it or whatever. And rich people, down through history, have oppressed poor people in order to enrich themselves. That's just human nature. You know, I saw a strange thing and observed this um, being in India particularly, but also in Sri Lanka. And I noticed this, that... The people who did most oppressing, who were kind of most discriminatory in their behaviour, were people, if it's in India, Indians who had got themselves up a wee bit in life. They had just got a good job or something like that and they just raised their family up a wee bit in the structure of society. And then they, in turn, were so harsh to the people in the, in the kind of strata of society they're left behind. So much discrimination, so much oppression at that level. It's within human nature to do that. As soon as people are lifted up, they oppress those underneath them. And what James is saying is just this, why pander to someone of wealth because of their wealth? It's the people of wealth that oppress those people that James is writing to and bring them before the judgment seats. That is the civil tribunals of the day. And the word oppress there is the word for terrorizing. It's tyranny. And he says what they do in your economic situation in terms of your money is just this. They harass you, they oppress you, they're tyrants over you and they use the civil law courts to enforce their tyranny, economic tyranny. They oppress you. Why pander to them? But then, religious reasons in verse 7, do not they blaspheme that worthy name by the which ye are called? In the days that James was writing, it was predominantly the rich of society who were hostile and who instigated the persecution of the Christians. So why, it doesn't make sense, favour a class of society that are actively hostile to you economically and spiritually? Why pander to that? Why seek the favour of that? Partiality, one writes or puts it, violates our profession of faith, is inconsistent with the character of God and the actions of God in salvation, and is also inconsistent with the base nature of the rich in society. And more importantly, God has a law about these things. 
And that's now what he speaks about in verse 8 there. So in verse 8 he says this, look. If you fulfill the royal law, according to the scripture. Now he's way back into Leviticus chapter 19 and Deuteronomy chapter 6 and so on. And he's speaking about the law. And he says, look. The law in the Old Testament said this. Love your neighbour as yourself. And if you do that, you'll do well. Now that resonates with us because you remember in the New Testament that that led to this telling the story of the Good Samaritan. So someone asked, you know, what's the greatest commandment? And the Lord Jesus summarised the commandments and Matthew gives us the summary of it and summarised the, these two commandments from Deuteronomy and from Leviticus 19. And the first law was to love your God, Lord your God, with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength. And Leviticus 19, to love your neighbour as yourself. And the Lord Jesus brings these two together and says, look, on these two things the whole law hangs. It's the summary of the essence of what the law of God is all about. Love God with everything you've got and love your neighbour as yourself. And then someone said, who is my neighbour? He wasn't worried about loving God with everything he's got. He thought he had that covered. But loving his neighbour, that was a bit much. Love your neighbour as yourself. And then, of course, the story of the Good Samaritan is told and you learn who the neighbour is in that story, quite unexpectedly. So what he's saying here is not just restricted to this section of scripture, but he says if you fulfill that royal law according to the scripture, you will do well. This will not be a problem to you. You know, the golden rule, if you treat people the way you expect them to treat you, then you're not going to have a problem with partiality, discrimination. However, verse 9, but if you have respect to persons, if you are partial... Now he's very blunt and he says two things. Number one, you commit sin. Number two, you're a transgressor. You fall short of God's standard and you overstep the mark. You're a transgressor. That's your character and the sin is that which the, the character produces. A transgressor who sins. And you say, well, you know, it's not a big deal. But then he reminds us it is a big deal for he says in verse 10, remember this, that when you offend in one point... You are guilty of the whole law. So you've actually fallen short of all God's law because of your discrimination against that man that walked in. And then someone will say, hold on a minute here. Do you mean to say that I'm guilty of the serious things of the law because I, I showed favour to someone who was rich and didn't treat someone who was poor the same way? Well, he goes on and he explains exactly what he means. He says in verse 11, He that said, do not commit adultery, do not kill said also, do not kill. Now, thou commit no adultery, yet if thou kill, thou become a transgressor of the law. He's saying this, if you break one of these commandments, you're guilty of the whole law. And that is true about discrimination. That's how serious it is. So he says in verse 12, someone who breaks God's law is subject to judgment under God's law. So speak ye, and so do, as they that shall be judged by the law of liberty. So it's two things. It's what we say and it's what we do. Discrimination expressed in both ways. And he says this, remember, if you exercise no mercy in your assessment of other people, then do not expect to have mercy when you're being assessed by God. 
Now there's a, there's a statement, because why could I expect to have mercy? If I am pitiless and merciless and unkind, what's that saying about my faith? Saying it's not real. That's what it's saying. That's what James is saying. It's the test. The test of the genuineness of your faith. You can say all you want, but if the way you are is expressed in the way that you say and, and the things that you do and you discriminate like this, that's sin. And it's not the character of God or of Christ and it's inconsistent with faith in Christ to be that sort of person. It's a worry as to whether your faith is real or not. And if someone's faith is not real, in verse 13, he shall have judgment without mercy. Because you've showed no mercy. But remember this, mercy rejoices against judgment. Now, sometimes we think that our behaviour towards people is just the way we are. See, that person's just harsh. So speak to people like that. You know, that's the way he was brought up. It may well be the way he was brought up. But remember this, as Christians, we can't separate these two things out. Because what we are is seen in what we say and what we do. That's the true test as to what we are. It's not what we say we believe. It's not kind of our, our creed that really tells what we are. It's how we behave when we hear God's word. That's chapter one. And it's how we behave towards people. Are we like God? Are we like Christ? And if not, why not? Is it because that we do not have the love of God in us? Or is it because we're walking far from God as Christians? Has to be one of those. So here is this test. And I don't think it's restricted to wealth. I think that's an example he uses about this partiality issue. I think it's true in your heart to do with things that the world has all woken up to in the 21st and 20th century. It's all to do with how men treat women. It's all to do with how young people respect older people. And it's all to do with race and you know, all these sorts of things that people talk about nowadays and that society is concerned about nowadays. The Christian should be way ahead of all that stuff, not requiring legislation as to determine how we behave towards people, but that we behave like that because that is how Christ behaves. It's terrible, isn't it, if you were to go to a foreign country <coughs> and that you didn't really want to get you know, the Christians in that country because they've got a certain skin colour or speak a different language or something like that. And yet, actually, all loved by God, saved by God, all blessed by God, all actually part of the same family of God. Discrimination like that is not Christ-like and it shouldn't be in our lives. Let's just pray.